I'd like for you to turn to the book of Galatians. I'm reading chapter 3, verses 6 through 11. And then I'll skip to verses 21 and 22, preaching through the book of Galatians. And I'm reading from chapter 3, verse 6. Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For as many as are, under, are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law, before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be, for if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up all men unto sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It might surprise some of you to know that there's a large number of people who are living under a curse. They're cursed. Their whole life is ruled and dominated by this curse. That strong language that the apostle uses, and he does use that, and applies it to a large number of people, a large number of people living their lives dominated by a curse. It might be a greater surprise to find out who these people are. They are not the derelicts that sleep at night under bridges and lie on skid row, and they're not the people who are awaiting execution in some prison on death row. They're not even those who are engaged in uh, satanic worship, a growing phenomenon in this country. Not even those. These people who are under the curse are religious folks aspiring to be decent, doing the best they can. These are the folks, he says, are under the curse. And the greatest surprise of all might be to find out how they got there. Now you would imagine, you might say, well these people must have done something terrible. To be cursed for all eternity. Maybe they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. They, that might be what the Bible refers to as the unpardonable sin. Surely these people uh, railed against God and turned against Him. No. The reason why they are under the curse is because they endeavored to please God, strangely enough. They gave their lives to the pursuit of religious excellence. And they performed and practiced 
the most rigid of religious practices, and for that reason, they're under the curse. And that's a mind-boggler. It's contrary to what the world would think. The world would see these people and would pat them on the back, and, and the world would say, you're doing great, it's wonderful, bless you, keep up the good work, you just keep trying. That's what the world would say. God says that in your endeavor to please me and to be acceptable, and in your religious pursuit, you're under the curse. I never cease to be amazed at the contrast, the contradiction between the way the world thinks and the way God thinks. Absolutely opposite. I think I found a foolproof way of finding out what the way God thinks. Just take a census of the way man thinks, reverse that 180 degrees and you'll be close. And that's what he says in verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under curse. For it is written, Cursed is any man. Cursed is the person who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Now the reason this passage is so vital is because it deals with the basic issues of life and it answers the basic questions of life. For example, how can I gain the approval of God? How can I be acceptable to Him? How can I know when I die that God will accept me into His heaven? How can I know that I have lived a life that is pleasing and acceptable to God? The world would say, well, you try your best. You live by the Ten Commandments. Surely they're the Ten Commandments. Everybody ought to live by them. And if you really want to clinch this thing, you follow the principles of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and God will approve you. And that's what Paul is talking about when he talks about those who are living under the law. Those are the people who are living under the requirements and the demands of the Ten Commandments. But it's more than that. As a matter of fact, in the Greek New Testament, the definite article... The is not before the word law. It's not under the law, it's under law. Under law in general. And it refers to any religious system that seeks to find the approval of God by what itself can do. It refers to any philosophy or any religious view that seeks to gain the approval of God by the keeping of rules. So I'm going to gain the approval of God by the keeping of the rules. And God says, in the very act of that, you're under the curse. And that means that you're alienated from God in this life and you're separated from God in the life to come. For God is a God of love and grace and all He wants to do is to bless you. And He says that when you're living under the law, you take yourself out from under His blessing and put yourself under the curse. Now why is that true? Well it's true for two reasons. The first is this. Living under the law shuts us up to sin. And that's what he says in verse 22. But the scripture has shut up all men under sin. The word shut up there means to be closed in on four sides and it's really a reference to a prison cell. Now watch what he's saying. He's saying that if you're living under the law, you have been shut up in prison and the law is the jailer that keeps you there. Now that's, that's, that's amazing. 
This is what that says. Now watch this. It says that if you seek to gain the approval of God by the keeping of law, by the keeping of the law, you shut yourself up to sin and the law that you seek to keep itself becomes the jailer that guarantees that you will never escape. Now I know what some of us think. I'll just keep the law and if I keep the law then I'll be free and God will accept me. No, the keeping of the law guarantees your enslavement. Now why is that true? Well it's true because the law is the manifestation of the character of God. I gotta ask myself, what kind of a God am I dealing with here? Now if I'm going to gain the approval of God, I need to find out what kind of God I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to please. If I want to gain your approval, I want to find out what you like and what you don't like. I just finished reading a book called Swim with the Sharks and Not Be Eaten Alive. It's an entrepreneurial book written by a guy who has this large envelope uh, company in Minneapolis wealthy multi-millionaire. He was the prime mover in the building of the Metrodome where the twins and the Vikings play professional ball. He has a chapter in this book entitled, Knowing Your Prospect is as important as knowing your product. And he says he, and he has these 66 questionnaire that he gives to all of his salesmen that they have to answer and everything in that questionnaire has to deal with the prospect. What his high, high, you know, height is, and what his favorite color is, all that good stuff. And he told about trying to win this guy's business, get this guy as a client, couldn't get to first base. And he found out this guy loved the Chicago Cubs uh, baseball team. Got to be something wrong with him. He said, so, so he spent months memorizing everything he could about the Chicago Cubs. And so he took him out to lunch and, and he started talking about the Chicago Cubs and he just spilling out all this information. And it just, I mean, it just happened there. This guy got all excited and there was about a three hour dialogue going on between this guy and this, this client. And he was just pouring out this information he'd memorized about the Chicago Cubs. And when he finally got all the information out he could, the, the guy signed on his client, never once talked about his product. Now what are we dealing with when we talk about God? What, is, what kind of God is this? If he's some pagan God, inconsistent and riddled with inequity, man, I gotta, I'm, I'm, I'm home free. I got a great chance because I'm bothered by inconsistency and I'm riddled by inequities. What kind of a God is this? If he's a pagan God, then I stand a good chance of gaining his approval. In Paul's day, there were these pagan deities that were vile and impure and immoral. And the way you pleased them was to be involved in all kinds of sexual perversions. And they even had uh, temple prostitutes. If this is the kind of God that, that we're dealing with, a God who is, who is prone to sin, then I can get along fine with him. But the purpose of the law is to reveal that God is a holy and righteous God. And in order to gain his approval, I must be absolutely holy and absolutely righteous. Well, you see, the Ten Commandments are no more than God in written form. The Ten Commandments are just a manifestation of the character and the nature of God. 
And this God is holy and righteous, absolutely. And in order to gain his approval, I must be absolutely holy and absolutely righteous. And not just that, but the Bible says that I have the law written in my heart. You can call it conscience or whatever you want to. The Gentiles protested when Paul preached about the law, and they said, well, we didn't have the law. They're talking about the Jews. And Paul said, that doesn't mean that you're without excuse because you have the law written in your heart. And what he was talking about there was that you have a sense of right and wrong. Now the fact that you have a sense of right and wrong is the proof of the absolute holiness and righteousness of God. Now where do we get this sense of right and wrong? Kids have it. What little ones do. You, you ever notice they have a sense of right and fair play? You know, it's disgusting, isn't it? These, these kids have this sense of fair play. They soon get over it. They get out of it. But, but, but they do. We all have this sense of right and wrong. Where did we get this? Well, we got it because we were created in the image of God. And because we were created in the image of God, that means that because we have a sense of right and wrong, He is absolutely righteous. And He is absolutely holy. When I first started the seminary, there was a, a course we had to take at the very beginning called Biblical Backgrounds. Now what Biblical Backgrounds, that course was about the culture and the life in the time that the Bible was born. And they showed a lot of slides. Now I didn't get too fired up about those slides. We were down in the basement of Scarborough Hall. It was dark and they'd turn off the lights and kids would preach it. Now, the true story, they had a, they had a a kind of an aisle about the size of this front here that separated the front from the, of that class from the back of it. You remember that, Kevin? And, 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 and the aisle went out to the door. And some were behind the, the aisle and some were in front of it. And when they turn off the lights, now these were preachers now, mind you. They'd crawl on their hands and knees and slip out. You know, while they had the lights off, some of those guys were your pastors. You know, crawl. Can you see that? There's professors up there showing slides about biblical backgrounds and preachers are crawling on their hands and knees to slip out. Well, evidently they didn't get too fired up about the slides either. And they'd show these slides that these archaeologists would come up with. These archaeological digs, they'd go into these countries and they'd uncover these lost civilizations and they'd get little fragments of pottery and, and weapons and buildings, just fragments. But because they uncovered these fragments, it proved the whole, you see. The fragment proved the whole of the civilization. Now our sense of right and wrong, to be sure, is fragmented. But it proves the whole. That is, that there is a moral absolute and that we are created by one who is absolutely holy and absolutely righteous even though our sense of right and wrong is just in fragments. Just in fragments. And while this generation of us tries to disprove a moral being in the universe, the very fact that we know there is a moral being, that there is a right and wrong, proves that he's there. Now, by the written law and the law that's written in my heart, I am shut up to sin because it is a manifestation of the character of God. Secondly, 
Not only does living under the law shut you up to sin because it is a manifestation of the character of God, it shuts you out of salvation because it is a measure of your character. Uh, if you've ever been to Six Flags, you know that there's some rides the little kids can't go on. And at the entrance of those rides is a sign. It usually has a mark on it. And the sign reads, if you're not as tall as this sign, you can't go in. It's interesting to watch little kids that come up to that sign. And they'll stand on their tiptoes. entrance. Now God erected a sign as it were and that sign is his law. And he says to us if you don't measure up to this you can't go in. And the amazing thing about all of this is that God does not measure me by you. And that's what he says in verse 11. He says by the, by the law, no man is justified in the presence of God. Now, you might be justified by the law in the presence of, of man. A guy said to me the other day, it was a proof he didn't know me. He was talking about somebody was moving to town, and he said to me, he said, he's a great guy. He's, he, he said, he, he's almost as good as you are, Gerald. I said, well, the reason you say that is you don't know me. He didn't. Now, I might be justified in his, pre in his sight because he doesn't really know what I'm really like. But that's not the issue. Now, listen carefully. The issue this morning is not how you appear to man. It's how you appear to God. And he's erected this sign, and this sign is his law. He says, if you don't measure up here, you can't go in. As a matter of fact, God says this. He says, I'm going to give you a, a one-question exam unto salvation. I'm going to give you an exam unto salvation. If you miss one question, you're out. For James says that if you offend in one part of the law, you offend in all of them. He's saying, I'm going to give you a, a salvation exam and if you miss one question, you fail. Uh-oh, that's pretty tough, isn't it? Because if I miss one law, break one law, break them all. Now there is a perfect illustration of the law. To find that, you have to go over to where Jesus taught. Now I want you to listen carefully to this. One day a man, a lawyer, came up to Jesus and said to him, he said, uh, which is the greatest law? And Jesus said, okay, I'm going to tell you which is the greatest law. He said, this is it. Listen to this. You shall love, emphasize love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now let me ask you this morning, be honest with you, be honest. Let's, let's get down, let's be honest. Is there anybody here this morning that could stand up and testify that from the very first moment he became aware of right and wrong, from that moment till now, to this moment, he has always put God first. 
in everything and in every way. He has loved God more than anything else. Is there any person who can stand and give testimony to that? Is there anybody this morning who could stand and give testimony and say this, there has never been, ever since I have been aware of right and wrong, from that moment on, there has never been one command of God that I have broken. And there's never been a time when I have not done the will of God perfectly and completely. Is there any man who can do that? The rich young ruler came to Jesus bragging about how he kept the commandments from his, from his youth. Jesus said, okay, we'll just, we'll just check that out. Take all your money and give it to the poor. And he couldn't do it. Why? Because he missed the first commandment. God wasn't his first love. His money was. Jesus just showing him that. That's, that's what he, he didn't say that meant that everybody has to do that to follow Jesus. He just showing him that, that God really wasn't first. His money was. Now, how many of you this morning can say that in every way, from the time you first started out, God's been first in your life? You say, well, enough's enough. You got me. Well, it's, it's, there's more. Jesus said, and the second is like it. Now, what he meant by that was that just like you have to, just like God has to be first, so does your neighbor. He said, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, your neighbor is that person within your sphere of being. He's that person in your house. She's that person in your home. It's that guy at school, that girl at school. He's that person next door, down the street, where you work. It's, that, it's those people that are within your sphere of being and activity. Let me ask you, how many of you can stand and give testimony that from the very first moment you had a sense of what that was about, you've always put your neighbor first in every situation, down to the smallest degree. You've never gossiped about anybody. You've never had a bad thought about anybody. And you've always put yourself behind someone else. Got you. Got me. I got out the yearbook not long ago to look at it. And guess whose picture I look for first? Yours truly. <laughs> Most important person in that yearbook. Not my wife. She's the same class as me. I look at her first. You know, not, certainly not the guy I sat across the aisle that I couldn't stand. I didn't look him up. You know, not my buddies. You know whose picture I look for? I look for myself because we all have a proclivity. We all have a tendency. We all have a propensity to put ourselves first. And we've all fallen short. Now you may be taller than me. You probably are, but you ain't tall enough. Because we have not measured up to the law. And you say, well, does that mean that nobody can be saved? Ah, no, it doesn't mean that. And when we get to next week, when we talk about the purpose of the law as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, it means this, that the law was never intended to bring you, make you acceptable to God. The law was to drive you to the place where you look for a Savior. And you realize that it's not by your works, but His. 
And it's not by the deeds that you have done, but the death that he has died. And that's what Paul means when he goes on in this text to say that he was made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This is what God's saying. He said, I'm going to give you, um, I'm going to ask you a question. And if you get the right answer, you make a hundred. My scholars here on the front row, some of them probably never have made a hundred. In anything, I didn't make too many. Yeah, I'm going to give you an exam. You say, I'm going to ask you one question. I want you to answer this question. You answer this right, and you make a hundred. The question is this. Have you ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ to be your Savior? You say amen to that? You place your faith in Jesus Christ, and you get 100% written across your life from now on. That's pretty amazing. Pretty awesome. Now just for those today who have not measured up, and just for those today who understand what God is like, is this invitation for you to know that you are not about to save yourself. Not at all. But there is a Savior who became a curse and he paid the penalty you and I were supposed to pay. Have you ever placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Come on, let's get down to it. Have you ever placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone? Have you been so committed to doing that that you've come publicly to declare your faith? Have you ever placed that faith in Jesus Christ? I want you to do that right now. In your heart of hearts, right now, I want you to say, Jesus, I place my faith in you alone to make me acceptable to God and write 100 across my life. 100% saved. And then get up out of the aisle, get out of the aisle and come, come here this morning publicly declare that. If you're a Christian who's not living for God and you've been outside of fellowship, come this morning, get things right. If you're a Baptist and you need to move your membership, place your life here. This is going to be a time, good time to do that. Is God calling you to do that? Why don't you come this morning, place your life here in this fellowship, in this church, where God can be glorified by your effort and labor. We're going to pray, and our prayer will be that you'll have courage to do that. And then we'll stand and sing. Join me. Father, Spirit of the living God, now speak words of invitation and call people to you. Give courage and faith to respond. For I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. In the spirit of prayer now, you know the invitation. We invite you to come or to stand the same. We come on the very first word. The very first word.